Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's turn today to uh, John chapter 13, and I'm going to put the scripture up here on the screen for you. We're going to take a look at John 13. Uh, We know living for Jesus is different than living for ourselves, living for the world's um, goals and aims. And uh, we can see a little bit of the importance of the moment that we're looking at tonight in uh, the fact that Jesus has been talking all through the Gospel of John about his hour. And he says, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And then finally, uh, he says in the last chapter, my hour has come. And so there's an urgency here. And uh, you may not know this, but John 13 through uh, 17 uh, a great part of the book of John, I think it's somewhere around a third, maybe a fourth of the book of John, is upper room. Isn't that interesting? Like, we like to have things spread out, and we'd like to know about Jesus' childhood, but we don't get much about that. What we get is this focus on important moments, moments that um, if we believe John the disciple is the writer of the Gospel of John, I do, that moments that he was there for. So he's given us eyewitness account, and we're hearing something significant. And, and this is coming, in my, in my understanding, this is coming after uh, about 60 years of reflection. He's been talking about this and thinking about this and reflecting upon this and praying about this. And, and so he knows the key things that he wants to bring out. And here is a, a significant moment. Let's uh, look at John 13. And you can see here verses 1 and following, and we'll read through verse 17. It was just before Passover festival, and Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go up to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, uh, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I'm told that in the Greek this is uh, like on the extreme of emphatic. You will never, ever, ever wash my feet. Okay, So he's emphatic about this. And Jesus answered him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And, and here's the funny, I, lo- I like Peter. You can see his personality come out all through the scriptures, can't you? That all, all Jesus has to do is push back a little bit, and Peter flips to the other side, and he's like, whatever you say, whatever you say, master. So uh, he pushes back a little bit here and says, uh, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then Lord uh, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath uh, need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he was saying that not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the master greater than the one, excuse me, the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you 
do them. There's a lot that's going on here, and John has a real knack for um, drawing out the symbolism of Jesus' actions, and he does that here. Uh, Jesus knows the hour has come, and when he uses the, the word hour, he doesn't mean a 60-minute period, does he? He means something else. He, he's talking ab- about uh, the time of closing events of his ministry on earth. Colin Cruz, in his commentary, says the theme of Jesus' hour time has been to uh, has been to the fore throughout the gospel. In the earlier part, we're told that things did not happen because his hour had not yet come. And so we see that in verses uh, chapter 2, verse 4, 7, verse 30, 8, verse 20. My hour has not yet come. But in 1223, that's just the last chapter. In fact, the last part of the last chapter that we looked at, uh, Jesus says, my hour has come. The hour has come. He repeats that in 1227, 13, 1, 16, 32, and 17.1, all upper room moments where now they are in this moment of fellowship together. They're celebrating the Passover. And the Passover is really a celebration of Israel's redemption, isn't it? That they're thinking about how God brought them out of their slavery. And uh, as they celebrate the Passover, there's a sacrificial lamb. And, and there's a, a lot of foreshadowing of what would take place with the Messiah in the Passover. And Jesus, there at that time, gathers with his disciples, and he realizes the hour has come. He goes on to say, uh, Colin Cruz, the hour was the hour of Jesus' departure from the world to return to the Father through his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And so this is something his whole life is looking forward to is, is this moment of redeeming mankind. To really understand these verses, we have to remember that this night will be the closing meeting with them before he goes to the cross. And, and what that means is this is kind of a farewell speech that's taking place. And when it's a farewell speech, you don't, you don't say frivolous or trivial things. You say the important things. The things that you want people to remember, you, the things that you want them, <clears throat> excuse me, to act upon when you're away from them. And they need this preparation because they don't really understand. As often as Jesus has said things like this, it seems to, to not really break through their, their understanding. <clears throat> Come on, do you, do you understand that uh, maybe in our lives or in the lives of maybe your kids, sometimes you've said things and just doesn't quite click? Right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it's not what you think it is. It's just I breathed in the wrong kind of thing. <laughs> so sometimes there's those things that just they just don't quite get through. And then the moment comes and maybe more information or some kind of a visual or maybe the pieces just come together and it clicks all of a sudden. Anybody read a verse in Scripture over and over again and then you read it one day and finally it just clicks. You know what, what uh, the Word is talking about there. They haven't gotten to that moment yet. And so Jesus is telling them all these things, and he hints at the fact that you don't quite understand this, but the time is coming pretty quick <clears throat> when you will. You will understand what I'm talking about. So uh, this is a moment of urgency. There, <clears throat> there are important words and acts which need to be said and done uh, that they might understand the nature of the hour that's coming later and that they might understand the calling of the followers of Christ. I want to break this up into two different categories. The first uh, category is this, is, uh, is, and you could phrase it like a question or a statement. What kind of Savior he is? What kind of Savior he is? What kind of Savior is he? And uh, I think verses 1 through 5 show us what kind of Savior he is. Look at verse 1 with me again here. Uh, it says here, and I'm going to try to use some of my technology that's not quite worked so well lately, but let's try it again anyway. He says right here uh, in verse 1, uh, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father, and having loved his own, having loved his own who are in the world. Let's try this. Hey, there we go. Sorry, it's not straighter. Oh, thank you, Pastor. You shall not lose your reward. Excuse me just a moment. All right, notice that he's a loving Savior. It says here that he 
he loved them to the end. And uh, the, the, the word end here is this word in Greek. It's, it's telos, okay? And it can mean a couple different things uh, as we think about this. It can mean to the very end of his life. He loved them to the end of his life. How many believe Jesus loved them to the very end, even as he's dying on the cross? He wasn't bitter. He wasn't jaded or cynical like, look what I'm doing for you guys, and you're so ungrateful. You split as soon as the heat was on. He wasn't mad about that. He was even saying to those who were crucifying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So this this statement to me seems kind of obvious. But the other thing that this can mean, because telos can mean not just the end, like the goal, but the purpose and uh, the extent. So uh, it could be translated this way, that he loved them uh, not just to the end of his life, but to the fullest extent of love. Okay. And I, I, I think that either one could be uh, the intention here. I don't think maybe it's both, but I think uh, one or the other. I'm not sure which. But both are certainly true. And the first uh, seems obvious enough. And the second point has to do with showing them the full extent of his love. And this is really a key to understanding Christ's servant action in John. We need to understand Christ's servant action in John, that that it was an action motivated by love. I've tried to say this over and over again because I think sometimes we think here in John 3.16, it's, it's saying God so loved the world like so much, and, and that would probably be extent of love. But what it's saying is that God loved the world in this way, and then the extent of his love is shown by the fact that he offered his one and only son. It was really kind of a beautiful thing during our VBS that, when Monalyn was teaching in her classroom, she was talking about this very point, and it occurred to her, I don't know if I would offer my son for you, she, but God offered his son for us. And I think it was an emotional moment there, VBS. You know, uh, just because we call it VBS and it's for the kids do, don't mean that deep and meaningful theology isn't communicated. It is true truth that grows with us, that we, we grow into as time goes on. And so he loves them. He loves them to the very, the very end. And I, I think that's uh, uh, not just end, but to the extent. And that's the key here. He loved them. Uh, he loved even Judas, who would betray him. Don't you find that fascinating? It doesn't say he washed all the disciples' feet, except for Judas. Would you assume? Do you assume, like I do, that Judas got his feet washed that night? Is there any reason to believe otherwise? I don't think there's any... We can't base an argument on silence. There's nothing said about it. It seems to me Judas was, along with the other disciples, as John says, he washed the disciples' feet. And the Bible says something here about Judas. Let's see if we can uh, get to that verse. It says that... uh, um, Sorry... That would be verse 3. Jesus knew who, uh, oh, there it is, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. So I'd like you to notice here that this word, this word prompted here, he had already prompted okay, the, uh, Judas to betray. And the uh, interesting thing about the word prompted here, uh, it comes from a, a word that means to throw. And the word means that Satan threw into his heart a thought. Threw into his heart. Does that sound a little bit like temptation? Okay. And let's keep in mind, too, that uh, in the Hebrew mindset, there wasn't a clear distinction between heart and mind like what we have. We, we think of mind as thinking thoughts and hearts as having feelings, and they didn't make that distinction. So when you talk about, uh, like, the inclinations of a man's heart or a person's heart, that's the, their way of thinking, okay? So we would, we would read back in uh, anachronistically if we read emotions in terms of heart. It's, it's thoughts. A thought was thrown into his mind. A thought was thrown into his heart here. And so the ESV says that Satan put this thought into his heart. Uh, the Revised English Bible, they put it into his mind. Uh, Weymouth's translation says Satan suggested it to Judas, and then the Bible for everyone, he put the idea 
he put the idea into the heart, threw it into the heart. So Judas, at this point, has already been prompted to betray Jesus. Uh, and, and what that means, it seems to me, is some kind of a suggested thought that you're going to betray him tonight. Now, the arrangements are about to be made, right? So he's been prompted with this. And I, I see, as, as we talked about last week, I see a progression here, that there's a thought that's initiated temptation, and then we choose to either decline that or follow it. I had to think of last week after we had a question about um, about Judas, whether he's predestined to this. And I was thinking about uh, the interesting thing with Cain. Do you remember Cain uh, when he was angry with his brother? Do you remember what Cain did? God said to him, Cain, uh, sin crouches at your door and it desires to have you. But you must master it. So he puts it on him. Sin is crouching at your door and it wants to have you, but you must master it. And it seems to me that if Cain had done what God told him to do, he would have never committed the first murder. But he refused that. He didn't master it. He didn't take control of it. He didn't seize it. And I think sometimes, I know this is going beyond the scope of what we're talking about, but I think that sometimes we feel that whatever inclination comes into our heart, that we just have to follow that. If we have a feeling, we've got to follow our feelings. You don't have to follow your feelings. You're free not to. You can master them. Okay? Uh, it seems to me that God's revelation is the leader in our life and not our emotions, but we, we, don't, always, we don't always practice that. Or whatever we think we just have to do. No? And we're not the products of our biology, as if our biology determines whether we're going to be good or bad. You know, what, you know what I mean by that? That some people think we're, we're only the result of the synapses that are firing our brain, electrical impulses and, and biological, physical structures, and that we have no free will outside of that. And I think to be human means that we can step outside of ourselves and try to be objective and reason with ourselves. Anybody had an argument with yourself besides me? Okay, I I've, have, and sometimes I've taken both sides. That doesn't get you very far, but, you know, what what are you going to do? Oh, that was such a foolish thing you did there, Luke. I'm stepping outside the circumstances and thinking about that. Well, here uh, it's been prompted to Judas that he should do this, and it seems to me at this point he has a decision to make, whether to follow the prompting and say no, which, as I understand Scripture, he could have done, but God knew already he wasn't going to. But then as he accepts that prompting, he opens himself up because later it says Satan entered him. Now, I don't know if you feel the gravity of that, but when people are demon-possessed, they're usually possessed by a demon. To be Satan-possessed, like that's even more than, to me, in my mind, that's even more than like Legion. You know, (laughs) what's your name? Legion, for we are many. Okay, that's at a high level. Do you think? Satan, this is so important, Satan is going to do that. Because he's not omnipresent. Are you with me? Just a little ground theology here. Satan's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. Okay? Now, if he comes, he's probably sent a minion of some kind to tempt us or to oppress, in some cases to possess. But he's not omnipresent. So the fact that Satan possesses Judas, that's a big deal. Satan prompts him to betray Jesus. Okay, so I just want you to know that this thing is already in the works and Jesus already knows that these things are happening and he still washes Judas's feet. All right, he's never caught off guard by what people are thinking. Uh, Jesus isn't. Uh, the only thing that the Bible says amazes Jesus is people's faith. Like he's amazed and astonished at people's faith. Other than that, you don't see him get surprised too often, okay? So he chooses to wash Judas's feet. I wanted to uh, talk about the washing of the feet and what was so shocking about this. The first thing uh, that I notice here as we talk about this is foot washing was considered servile. Does everybody know that, that foot washing, that's not like what the rabbi should be doing. It's not what the, the homeowner is doing. It's not what the, the, whoever is hosting the party is doing. This is something for a, a servant to do. And not only is it something for a servant to do, I've heard uh, from those who know 
that this is not just a servant. This is like the starter position as a servant. Like the servant boss tells the servant newbie, you're going to be washing feet. Right? So that, that shows you the level of humility that Jesus is taking on here. And, and here's the other thing is that usually, and, and I'll read a passage related to this in just a moment from uh, some rabbinical literature, but disciples usually served the, the rabbi, but one of the exceptions to that was foot washing, that they shouldn't wash, they shouldn't wash the rabbi's feet. Can't, a rabbi can't expect his followers to wash their feet. But if you think about it, that would have been more natural than what Jesus did, Right? Okay, so there's that. And then the third thing is that the king of heaven is the one in this story acting as the servant. Are you with me? This is the king of heaven who's descended from his glory and come down and taken on humanity and, and now is washing feet. Right? He's exalted to the highest place, but he doesn't cling to his equality with God. Instead, he humbles himself and becomes human, and he descends even lower to the place of a servant, tells us in Philippians 2, and goes even further than that, the place of death on a cross. Okay, so this is the kind of shocking thing that's taking place here, and I'm not sure that they're grasping all of it, but they grasp it enough to say, this really is weird, and it shouldn't be happening. Peter at least thinks that. John the Baptist may be, uh, re- may be referencing foot washing, uh, when he talks about sandals or sandal carrying, when he says in John 1, uh, so remember, John has written chapter 13, he's, all, he's also written chapter 1, that's obvious, but so we got to keep all that in mind as we come to chapter 13, that John the Baptist says, I baptized with water, but among you stands one you do not know, he's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Okay. And what uh, John is saying there is that he's claiming that he's not even worthy to be considered Christ's slave. Jesus said John's the greatest of prophets, but now he's saying, John's saying, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. So uh, Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, A.D. 250, this is a little after the time of Jesus, he taught that all manner of service that a slave must render, he must render to his master, the pupil must render to his teacher. So anything a slave would do for his master, a pupil, a disciple, must do for his rabbi, okay? Except, he said, that of taking off the shoe. So anything to do with feet is kind of the gist of what this is talking about, and especially foot washing. But John the Baptist acknowledged that he's unworthy to untie Jesus' shoelace, a task judged too menial for even a disciple, this is a really telling statement of how uh, John the Baptist, I like to call him JB, he considers Jesus to be so much greater. And you can see it in Peter's reaction in verse 6, Lord, you'll never wash my, are you going to wash my feet? Question mark, exclamation point. Okay. Uh, you will never, ever, ever wash my feet. Why? Because that's not the kind of thing that you do. You're our rabbi and we hold you in high regard. You can't do that. Imagine that. We think that he would somehow become less because he washed feet. No, I think uh, in many ways he, he ought to become greater in our eyes because doing a menial task didn't diminish who he was, who he is, I should say. <clears throat> we see what kind of, um, what kind of savior he is. First, he's a He's a, a loving Savior. He loves to the end. He loves to the uttermost. And we see that he's also a humble Savior. And uh, he's willing to do the very humble thing. Okay. The second thing we want to look at here is what kind of servants should we be? And this is verse 6 uh, through 17. Um, so let's, let's read that portion, chapter 13, 6 through 17. So he's washed the disciples' feet. He comes to Peter. Uh, he said, uh, Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What kind of servants should we be? The first thing that we ought to understand from this is that as servants of God, we need to be cleansed. Okay? Nobody jumps into following God as just like a paradigm shift in their life without coming through Jesus. You understand what I mean by that? That this is not just uh, character reformation, that we just have gotten on this self-help program that helps us be better people. It's not like that. This is something, uh, it is like that, but before that can happen, there needs to be something supernatural that takes place in us, right? Remember uh, how Jesus had earlier in this gospel had the conversation with Nicodemus, and he said, unless you be born again, you, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, can I enter into my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, uh, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. You're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? Born of water and of the Spirit. And what that's talking about, it goes back to Ezekiel uh, 36, 25 through 27, where God says that he's going to do a new thing. He's going to wash them with water, and he's going to put a new spirit in them. Okay, Washed with water and put a new spirit in them. So what happens in salvation is that he cleanses us. Okay, He cleanses us from sin. He can't occupy a house that's not been cleansed. So he cleanses us from sin. There needs to be a cleansing. And then he sends his spirit to live within us and to help us to obey his law. Okay, So it's not enough that we're cleansed because if we're cleansed and we don't get the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we're not going to live a clean life. Are you with me? Do you know the Holy Spirit's first name? That's holy. <laughs> right? Or if you're reading the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the spirit of holiness. It's his last name. So just depend on how you look at it. But the point is that he brings holiness into the life of believers because of his presence. And so he wants to help us to live a cleansed life. But here, Jesus is making a point, and there's much more to this than meets the eye. There's a lot more to this than meets the eye. Jesus, in referring to this humble act of washing feet, is hinting at some other humble act that's going to happen just a few hours later. What do you think it is? They're going to come and take him, and what's going to happen to him? He's going to die on a cross, a slave's death. They don't execute good Roman citizens on crosses unless you've done something really heinous like betray the Roman Empire. Uh, this is a slave's death. And in doing this, he's serving. He, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, right? He came to ransom people through his life. He came in servant mode. And we, we hear about it in the um, book of Isaiah, and I think a lot of, and Zechariah and some other places, uh, about how when the Messiah comes... The expectation for many was victory and exaltation, triumphalism. And uh, they missed the part about the suffering servant. He was going to come and serve as a suffering servant. So Jesus, in referring to this humble act, is also referring to the uh, other humble act that they don't yet understand, the act of dying on a cross as a criminal to give his life as a ransom for many. So he hints at this when he says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but later later you'll understand this. And so the similarities are like this. First of all, uh, the act of dying on the cross and the act of washing feet are both an act of servant servanthood. Okay, So you can see the similarity there, and this is kind of being hinted at in this. You don't understand what I'm doing now, but you'll understand later. It's preparing them for what's taking place. The second thing is it's both instances are a little bit surprising that it's that it's happening. Okay? It's it's interesting that Jesus is the one doing this. Um, and then and then the third thing I think is it, he's the least deserving to do these things and the most willing. Okay? Just put these things side by side for just a moment in terms of his washing their feet, if he really is the king of heaven, if he really is the, the Lord and the master, if he's really the rabbi and the teacher and the one that they're looking to, he's the last one that should be washing their feet in natural conventional thinking, right? Um, when it comes to dying on the cross for sins, uh, 
if he's really the sinless lamb of God, if he's really the one who's spotless and completely pure as a lamb, right, that uh, he's tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin, okay, if that's really true of him, he's the last person that we would expect to be dying on a cross for sins, right? Even Pilate, who's not religious, at least in the the Jewish sense, says, I don't see anything wrong with him. There's there's an innocent man standing before me. And uh, his wife has the dream and says, don't have anything to do with this this innocent man. Uh, And others saw likewise that he he was innocent. I see nothing in him. So he's the least deserving, but he's also the most willing. He's willing to lay down his life for his friends. So he hints at that. Peter says emphatically no, and this shows how appropriate it seems to everyone, inappropriate it seems to everyone that Jesus should be doing this, this act of servanthood. And it would have been shocking for many, uh, even if it had been the other way around, as we talked about, that even the, if the one of the, the other guys had got up and washed other people's feet, that would have been shocking enough. But this is Jesus doing it, the rabbi. So Jesus making connection between this and being cleansed uh, through his serving work. So Peter refuses and says, I'm not going to have that. Jesus says something really strange. Unless you're washed, you can have no part with me. Okay, You have no part with me. Peter's refusal would keep him from being cleansed. And so Christ says, you would have no part. What, is, what does that exactly mean? The NLT says, you won't belong to me. If, you don't, if you're not cleansed, if I don't wash your feet or do whatever this act is symbolizing, you have no part with me. Now, it's not that if Peter has filthy uh, feet with dirt on them that he can't be a Christian. Do you you all understand that? That there's something deeper taking place here. It's not about dirty feet. You 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 can have dirty feet and go to heaven. Okay, That's not the real issue. The issue is that something else is taking place. The ESV says, you have no share with me, uh, New American Standard Bible. You have no place with me, the New American uh, Bible revised. You have no inheritance with me, Bible for everyone. You don't belong to me. Good news, Bible, you will no longer, this is really harsh, you will no longer be my disciple. If you're not washed, you can no longer be my disciples, my disciple. And so uh, Peter says, well, hey, if a little wash is good, then a lot more would be a lot better. So wash my head and my, the rest of my body as well my hands and my head in particular. And Jesus says, if you've had a bath, if you've had a bath, you don't need to have all that washed again. You just need to have your feet washed. Okay, so this is talking about the, it seems to me, the continual cleansing that takes place. And so um, there are denominations out there which teach a third ordinance of the church. Anybody know what ordinance of the church it means? What's an ordinance that we practice as the church occasionally? Baptism. Okay, we're going to have one this Sunday and maybe more. If you're interested in baptism, see me after service tonight if you've not been baptized yet. Um, We don't believe in uh, baptismal regeneration. I don't think that's what this is teaching. This is teaching something else that Jesus needs to wash and cleanse uh, us. And and that's, that's an interior thing, really. The external thing is more... Symbolic, my understanding. What's another ordinance we practice? Communion, right? And why do we call them ordinances? Anybody know? They're repetitive. They're ordained by God. They're commanded. Some churches have a third ordinance um, that they practice, foot washing. In fact, my grandpa is a pastor in the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, and they Practice foot washing as an ordinance, and every once in a while, and maybe every time you take communion, I don't know how they did it, but you wash feet, and that was considered an ongoing ordinance that you practiced. Now, how many are thankful that we don't practice that ordinance? You wish, maybe some wish we do, but aren't you thankful we we don't? We could. I mean, there's nothing against it, and throughout my Christian life, there's been times where we did foot washing services, but we didn't see it as like... Jesus wants us exactly to do exactly that. He wants, he wants to teach us another kind of point. But there was something in uh, foot washing uh, that helped them to learn a principle of servanthood. And so I think uh, foot washing can be humbling. 
If you've ever done it, it's humbling to wash somebody else's feet. It really is. Um, <clears throat> but the command, in my opinion, is to to do that exact thing, I, I don't see here because of all the cultural content that would have to import. And I doubt it has the same significance to us as it did to them in a first century Jewish home. Uh, as I said, I've done foot washing. And uh, one of the reasons uh, I think that it's not a command is it would be mentioned more in the New Testament. We see baptism mentioned again and again. Foot washing we see mentioned one more time, and it has to do with just showing hospitality. It doesn't have to do with you need, and when you get together as a church, you need to do this. Um, and so I'm just I'm talking about why when Jesus says here, uh, what I've done for you, you should do for one another. Uh, I don't believe he's talking that you have to, you have to bring out the bulls every once in a while. And uh, if people want to practice that, that's great. And I'm not against denominations doing that. I don't think it's heretical. I just don't think it's the point of this passage. Okay, so and uh, D.A. Carson says, nowhere else in the New Testament um, or in the uh, earliest extra-biblical documents of the church is foot washing treated as a, an ordinance or a sacrament. The mention of foot washing in 1 Timothy 5.10 is no exception, but there's, there's, uh, it's not introducing it as a universal right. It's placed in a list of good deeds of open-hearted hospitality. Uh, wise theologians, he says, have uh, and expositors have always been reluctant to raise, the, raise it to the level of a universal. And then he says the second thing is that more importantly, the heart of Jesus' command is humility and helpfulness towards brothers and sisters in Christ that may be cruelly parodied by a mere rite of foot washing that easily masks unbroken spirit and a haughty heart. And, and here's what he's saying is that, and you know this, Sometimes we can let ritual replace a real heart, okay? We could go through all of those things, and, we, and even with baptism and receiving the Lord's Supper and coming to the altar and raising our hands and singing songs, uh, it can look like on the outside that we're doing true worship, and on the inside we're rebels or we're unrepentant in some area. We don't have a cleansed heart or we don't mean it. Or we're thinking about the football game. We've got our hands raised and we're singing the songs and we're thinking about something else. It's insincere. So the point is not the external rite or ritual. The point is the heart that needs to accompany it. So I think in this case in particular, what Jesus is trying to teach is that we need to be serving. Okay. So let's look at this uh, and read on down here. I think it's verse 12 will get us where we need to be. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. You call me teacher and Lord. And then he goes on to say, um, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Now, if we want to take that real literal and, and I think beyond the intent here of what John is saying, we would say that Jesus wants us to do foot washings every time Passover comes. But I don't think that that's what's uh, at the heart of this. I've set you an example of what you should do as I've done for you. Truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So let me mention in our closing time here uh, four areas, five areas actually, uh, four areas, uh, where we need to be serving or why we need to be serving. First, uh, serving comes from the following of Christ's example. Okay, It comes from the following of Christ's example. He says uh, here in verse, let's find it. Now that I, your Savior, okay. I have set you an example. I've set uh, you an example in verse 15 that you should do as I have done for you. An example. The, uh, the word that's used here for example means uh, to an example of behavior used for moral purposes instruction, uh, example, model, or pattern. So it can be an exact example or it can be a pattern. 
The Lord's Prayer. Let me ask you, is the Lord's Prayer intended to be an exact model or more of a pattern? Probably more of a pattern, don't you think? That uh, He's not interested in us through rote memory just saying the Lord's Prayer if, our, if we're thinking about other things. I mean, it's fine to say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I think it's good to repray prayers, even from Psalms. Make sure your heart's in it. The, the more important point, I think, of the Lord's Prayer is that it's an example for us. These are the kind of things we ought to pray for. Sometimes we don't know what we should pray for. We're like, we need to pray. All right, what can we pray for? I don't know. Well, we need to know. One thing we can do is we can pray that God's name will be glorified on earth, right? Our Father in heaven, when it's saying, hallowed be your name, it's not just worship. It's a request. We want your name on earth to be holy. Father, make your name holy in all the earth. Okay? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom down. Give us today our daily bread. You know, we need provision from your hand because, and especially in days, and, and we still do. We just, it's just not as obvious to us. Like people are living day to day in the ancient world without refrigeration, right? And uh, it's not as obvious to us today, but we need his provision. Have you ever thought about what would happen if the supply chain got cut off in a state full of guns? Scary. We need his provision more than we know. I didn't want to put a scary thought in your head, but it might be worth considering. So we pray according to a pattern. It comes from following his example. The The serving is the kind of Savior that we have. And if that's the kind of Savior we have, we live a life that is based on the form of Christ. Okay, Let this mind, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about, he, he shares the Christ hymn about how uh, he didn't cling to his equality with God, but he humbled himself and became obedient, took on the form of a, a human, took on the form of a servant, died on the cross. Okay? Those are all, and, and Paul is saying, let this same mind that propelled Christ first down in humility and then up again in exaltation, let that mind be in you. Okay, so he wants us to be like that. He set an example for us to follow. So we need to be serving because it comes from following his example. The second thing um, is it comes from knowing our relation, uh, our relationship to him. Uh, what I think is fascinating about this is Jesus knew his relationship to the Father. He knew that God had, uh, the Father had put everything under his authority, right? He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going. He knew who he was. And therefore, no task, no matter how menial it was, could take away from that. Do you understand that when you know who you are in God, you can do small things. It doesn't diminish you. Do you understand what I mean? Then that's not a, that's not a proud thing to say. We are, we are uh, of value because God says we're of value. And he's paid the blood price of Christ for us. So being humble doesn't mean thinking we're, we're terrible and worthless. No, being humble is thinking less of ourselves and more of him and more of other people. That's being humble when, you for, when you're forgetful. So you can do menial tasks. It doesn't diminish you because you know who you are in God. You, you understand what I'm saying? That if it's serving or washing feet, why could Jesus do it? He knew who he was. He wasn't diminished by washing feet. In fact, everything he did, he brought up. He raised to a new level. Slaves in the ancient world were seen as property and nothing. And Jesus brought dignity to slavery. Do you understand that? Not in the way that he says it's okay, but to the slave who was considered nothing, he himself was a slave. And so he brought status to even the slaves. Think about how Paul addressed uh, Philemon and Onesimus and and how he brought them back together and said, your value is of an eternal worth because of who Christ is to both of you. You're brothers. He's not just a slave anymore. He's your brother. And it set the trajectory that eventually would break, would break slavery. I know there's still slavery in the world. But it sets the trajectory that shows human worth to every person because we're made in the image of God and duly dignified by his purchase. God made us. That gives us dignity already. And then he redeemed us. That establishes value as well. So we know who we are in relationship to him. 
and, and I wanted to point out here, he says, uh, if I, your master and teacher, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I do. Truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than their master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you must do them. Okay, so I'd like you to notice here that this comes in our relationship to him. Jesus is lesser than us or greater than us? Greater, okay? And if we're following him and he set the example that he's willing to serve, what should we be willing to do? Sir, should we say, oh, well, that's Jesus, and we know he was a servant, but I'm, I'm more important than that. No, we're willing to serve as well. Okay, so uh, we understand our relation to him as the Lord, the master, the teacher, the, uh, the one who is greater than us. And if he's willing to do the small thing, how much more should we be willing to do the small thing? Okay. The fourth thing is that serving comes, excuse me, third thing, it comes from obeying his command. He said, just as I've done this, you ought also to do this for one another. So he commands us to do it. Okay, He sets us an example. I love how he leads with the example. And then he uh, gives us a relational point, says, if you're really my followers and you consider me greater, then you should be willing to serve as well. Okay, And then he commands I've shown you, now you should do this too. That's command, okay? So if you can't find motivation in the example, find motivation in the fact Jesus says do it. Okay? And then the fourth thing is that it comes with a reward. Do you see that? Look at the last verse here, verse 17. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. What's the reward in that? What is, what's the reward there in verse 17? You'll be blessed. Okay? Blessed here can mean a state of happiness. Usually the Greek word makario uh, means something like uh, a blessed state. And it referred to an island where you know what I'm talking about. Like where all the problems go away. And uh, there's the breeze that's blowing in your face and it's nice and you just it feels wonderful. It was an island that that referred to. but And that's typically what the word blessed, the Greek word for blessed means. Uh, but the Hebrew word for blessed, uh, barak or barak, um, means to stand in God's favor. Listen, when, it, when, uh, when uh, Aaron's supposed to pray for the, his sons and bless his sons, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Do you know what to shine upon means? To smile at you. To find you in good favor. And this is what this is referring to here when it says, you'll be blessed if you do them. God will be proud of you. He'll be pleased with you if you do this. Okay, so when you think of the reward of that, uh, it's a joy to bring glory to him. What's that uh, Keith Green song? Uh, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Remember how it comes around and it says... Uh, and when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown, for my reward is giving glory to you. It's, it's really to please God. That's the real greatest reward, is to have God smile upon you and say, that's my son, that's my daughter. They're acting the way that I taught them to as servants. Peter didn't quite get it. He didn't, it didn't connect with him. He's still working on the world's model, which is the more important you are, the less you have to do servant-type things. And Jesus flips that on his head and says, if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you'll be servant. It's non-conventional wisdom. In fact, it's counterintuitive. And we have to fight against our natural thinking if we're going to live the servant life. I was telling the leadership team last night about my youth pastor. He preached here, Pastor Darren. When he came out of Bible college, it was Tim Inlow. You remember Tim Inlow? He's the one that introduced him to our pastor. He said, I know a guy I think would fit this role. They were looking for a youth pastor. And so they had interviewed somebody else. And um, our pastor had asked this other candidate to be the youth pastor. He said, would you be willing to move tables? And the guy said, I didn't get into ministry to move tables. 
And my pastor said, next. And so they, they brought the next guy in, which happened to be Pastor Darren. And he said, um, would you be willing to move tables? He said, I'll do whatever you need me to do. And uh, God, God did something with that humility to be willing. And in ministry, I don't know if you know this, but 99% of ministry is not this. A lot of it is moving things around. In fact, I think that it's 99% of life is moving objects from one place to another. Go to the grocery store. Get the, if, if, alien, if there were aliens and they looked down, they would see a bunch of people putting little boxes in cars and driving to places, taking boxes out of cars, going into other places. But I think it's significant to know that uh, Jesus was a servant. He's willing to do the, the, meni- the menial thing tasks that maybe nobody else would want to do. Nobody else, everybody else would think it was beneath them. And, and a lot of ministry is that way. It's a lot of details, a lot of little things, stuff that people don't want to do. Fix toilets. Take care of kids. Wipe runny noses. Come on, right? Sit with somebody in their hour of need when you would rather be doing something else. You could think of other things that need to be done, but you're willing to do it because that's the Jesus way. That's what this passage is about. Jesus cleanses us, and he cleanses us to be servants. And some, some argue, we're not servants. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. That's true, but let's not get carried away there because I understand that even after he said that, Peter, who heard that, John, who heard that, called themselves bond slaves of Jesus that they're under compulsion to want to serve him. Not, not slaves by compulsed behavior, but willing servants of him. You understand the difference? It's to say to Jesus, I owe you all. I want to give you all. I've gone way over. Let's, uh, let's stand tonight. And would you be willing to respond to the Lord with a prayer something like this? Lord, I want to be your servant, whatever that looks like. Now, don't say it if you don't mean it. Father, I just uh, I pray tonight you help us to hear the echo and the meaning of this passage all down through the ages, that you've not called us to make a name for ourselves. You've called us like Paul to die to self. As he said, I no longer live. I'm crucified with Christ. But what lives is Christ living in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a whole new way of living. I pray you help us to be the kind of servants that would bless the world and please you. We pray for your help this week to see those opportunities for what they are and to respond in humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for your attention tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.